Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and world. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters. We will consider today our theme, Women in Words, Bible Translation and Why It Matters. Our guest is Dr. Havila Darajam, and she leads the Old Testament team translation project here at CBE International. Havila currently serves as the academic editor of our award-winning academic journal, Priscilla Papers. She's a Langham Scholar in Great Britain and has for years pioneered better Bible translations and understanding of women in scripture. Currently, Havila heads the CBE chapter in India. She has a PhD uh, in Old Testament from the University of Durham, UK. Her research interests are Old Testament and comparative literature. She's a faculty member at the South Asian Institute for Advanced Christian Studies in India. With an interest in biblical narrative, she encourages the use of storytelling in the pulpit. She's an author of various articles, commentaries, and monographs, as well as an editor of the South Asian Bible commentary, Zondervan, and the forthcoming South Asian Study Bible. Uh, Havila writes and speaks for many groups, including CBE, and she did receive CBE's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019. Welcome, Havila. Thank you, Mimi. Uh, such a joy and privilege to be here with you. Yes, it's great. Now, what time is it over there? It's, it's evening in, in, in England yeah. where you're currently working. Yes. Yes, well, in mm -hmm. Bristol. It's uh, five o'clock in the evening now. Are you on the ocean there in Bristol? Pardon? Are you in Bristol, England? Yes, I'm I'm in Bristol. I've been here for four months uh, on a little writing break. Uh, I'm writing a commentary on One and Two Kings and uh, getting Priscilla Papers uh, going, uh, the second issue that uh, we are hoping to bring out in, in the fall. Well done, well done. Well, for those of us in our audience who really do not know much about CBE's Bible Translation Project, and since you lead the Old Testament team, can you talk a little bit about the project and why it should be crucial to English Bible readers? Let's start with why it should be crucial. Uh, the Bible, uh, I think um, most of us know, continues to be the most read book of all time, you know, across continents and countries, across languages and dialects, uh, across cultures and ethnicities. And so as a result, it's been the most influential book in world history, but not always for good. We know how it's been uh, misused and even abused to keep evil social structures in place. Uh, like uh, apartheid and slavery. Uh, on the other hand, it's also been the instrument by which such social systemic evils have been dismantled. So uh, much depends on the translation being used and how clearly it communicates uh, the sense of the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. So it's important, even critical, uh, that we have faithful translations. Apartheid and slavery, of course, have been taken down 
But there is another social reality that has continued unshaken, uh, perhaps more in some cultures and less in some others. And that is patriarchy. Patriarchy and all the injustices it has the potential to visit on one half of the human population, namely women. So uh, this is what CBE's Bible Translation Project seeks to address. Thank you. That was beautifully stated. It sounds like you have a lot of enthusiasm for this project, Havila. <laughs> Certainly. Yes. So could you share uh, a few of the less complicated Bible translation recommendations that are coming from your Old Testament team and that you're proposing? Mm -hmm. um, right. Let, let me do uh, one or two. Um, this comes from my experience and perhaps the experience of many women in uh, different parts of the world uh, of being um, uh, kept out of any leadership position in the church, uh, whether it is preaching or teaching or even mentoring. Uh, so look at Psalm 68.11. The literal reading for, uh, straight from the Hebrew word for word would be Psalm 68.11. The Lord speaks a word and a great army of women bring the good news. Uh, the way we are rendering that is the Lord speaks good news and a great multitude of women broadcast it. Uh, we like the word broadcast. Uh, it gives you agency. Think of Mary Magdalene. Think of the uh, women at the tomb. They were the first broadcasters. Uh, bringing good news perhaps uh, doesn't have that same energy perhaps. Mm -hmm. A great multitude of women uh, broadcasting it. And if that is the role of women in the church, broadcasting, mm -hmm. uh, well, that's uh, something like what we're doing now. And mm -hmm. maybe we should be doing much more. Eh? Um, and then I have another one. And this comes from perhaps my situation in India, where the inheritance of property uh, is uh, usually from father to son along the male line in a family. Uh, there is legislation now that doctors should inherit equally, but Women are conditioned uh, socially and uh, reluctant to stake any claim on property. Uh, so look at uh, Numbers 26.4. Now, this is the situation where a certain zealot he had dies without having any uh, sons. And ordinarily, the property would go to the next of kin, the male kin, that is. But the daughters of Zelophehad uh, come up to the leadership, to uh, Moses, and they say the following, Numbers 26.4, they say, Should our father's name die out from his clan just because he had no son? Give us property. And here, this is, this, the literal reading would read like this. Give us property in the midst of our father's brothers. Uh, now, father's brothers, that could apply uh, not necessarily to the uncles only, but to the males in the extended family. And so uh, the literal reading in the midst of our father's brothers, this is what we've done with it. Give us property as you would to our father's male relatives. Uh, staking an equal claim, uh, a claim that goes um, no. Well, outside of the family, uh, uh, discounting the 
fact that the property might pass on to uh, some distant male relative, they're saying, give us property just as you would to our father's male relatives. And so I think that makes it much stronger. And uh, we're hoping that that, that trans translations like this will catch the eye uh, of both men and women who are reading the Bible carefully. And... Um, help to set things right as far as uh, equal claim is concerned within the family. Excellent. So give us our rights, our property in the midst of our brothers. Could that also be construed as sort of a, a community of brothers or in the community of God or the larger country even of Israel? Mm -hmm. uh, the the tribes broke down into clans and clans further into families, what was called the Beit Av, that is the house of the father. So the house of the father was the unit you started with. That's where you looked at how property should be uh, passed down, uh, down to the son, or in this case now, uh, to the daughters. From there, you went into the clan. So when you didn't have anyone in the uh, house of the father, the basic unit to pass the uh, property onto, then you look to pass it outside that house into the clan, and then the name would change. Because then the property wouldn't be under the name of the patriarch of the family. It would now, that's that's why they're saying, should our father's name die out from his clan just because he had no son? So then it starts moving outward and the father's name even dies out. They would rather do that uh, in the ancient world, let the father's name die out, then pass it to the daughters. Mm. And uh, hats off to the daughters of Zelophehad for standing up for this. The story comes twice uh, in the Bible, not just in Numbers, but um, uh, later on once again when they enter the Promised Land. So uh, this is such a wonderfully bold and uh, feisty uh, claim, and I think it needs to stand out uh, much more. Absolutely. And Moses, I mean, he was the one who stood with these daughters, right? <laughs> and Moses is so greatly revered in the tribe's Abrahamic tribes. And so thank you for that. And broadcasting is again, to your earlier um, passage in the Psalms, broadcasting connotes sort of a public de declaration. Right. So this is not a private matter. This is a public matter. Right. And that's why I'm linking that with the role that women play in the church, in that's mission and ministry and preaching and teaching. It's a yeah. public role. Well, even leading denominations or movements around the world. That's right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Exciting. So then let me ask you, what about some of the more vexing translation issues the church continues to struggle with in the Old Testament? Can you share how the Bible translation team, especially the Old Testament, has struggled with these particular texts? Hmm. Um, the one CBE is wrestling with are texts that are particularly significant in setting out the biblical place and the worth of women. Um, unfortunately, nearly all of us read with cultural lenses, whether in the in the global north or in the south. Um, and while we're reading uh, the Bible describing patriarchal systems. Uh, set even in patriarchal systems, we tend to think sometimes that it endorses patriarchy uh, or, or um, at any rate, we um, um, uh, might unconsciously think 
it endorses patriarchy. And so one of the big ones uh, that the church struggles with, of course, uh, is uh, Genesis 1, 23 to 24, um, where here uh, the man is doing this little uh, poem. Uh, he's met the woman uh, for the very first time. Finally, the man exclaimed, here is one who is, and we know, uh, the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, and then the second line of that poem says, because she was taken from man, she shall be named woman. Uh, now, when we read it with um, uh, the through the lenses of uh, patriarchy, uh, even um, in a totally unconscious way, uh, we might imagine that the woman is in some way derived from the man and therefore lesser than or secondary to or supplementary to the man. Uh, complementary, of course, is another word. Uh, but uh, if we didn't render the first line word for word, that is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, but instead, if we translated it sense for sense, then the English idiom for that would be Flesh and blood. Now, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh uh, occurs in other places in the Bible. This is definitely not the only place it does. Uh, for example, in Genesis 29, 14, uh, Laban uh, says this to his nephew, Jacob. He says, you are my own uh, bone and flesh. Come stay with me, he says. This is a man speaking to a man, please notice. And then we have in 2 Samuel 5, 1, uh, the Israelites come up to David and say, you are our bone and our flesh. Uh, and we uh, have this in several other places um, in, in the Old Testament where the idiom bone and flesh are being used in uh, conversations that are establishing a kinship relationship men with men, kinship relationships. Now, especially in the global South, uh, which is far more family-oriented and community-oriented, uh, this is the highest obligation a man could can have, which is kinship obligations, obligation to your flesh and blood. And that always trumps the obligation to the person you marry, to the woman you marry. And here is this wonderfully subversive text saying, here is one who is my own flesh and blood, my own kin. And that's why, that's why the next verse says, a man detaches himself. This is how we are entering it. A man detaches himself from his parents, who are the highest possible kinship obligation, and attaches himself to his wife so that they bond together and become one family. So the mm -hmm. family unit then becomes, becomes the man and his wife. That would have been a totally subversive, totally radical uh, demand in any Eastern society and well in any society even now in the global South. Oh my goodness, yes. I know that all too well from my own origins and I really actually see it in second and third generations here in the United States. It's extremely relevant and it's, a, it's an instinct, isn't it? To defer okay. to your kinship clan. Yes, very much. Thank you for that insight, it's powerful. And may the wisdom of your team bring enormous truth and that, therefore healing to the world. CBE International presents Women in Scripture and Mission. Finding hope in the God who saved the Israelites from slavery, Rahab bravely protected the Israelite spies from Jericho's king. 
She prophesied to the spies of Israel's upcoming success and negotiated with them to save her entire clan. God honored Rahab's bravery and loyalty, making her a descendant of King David and Jesus. Learn more at ministrywomen.org. That's ministrywomen.org. So, Havila, why, in your view, have Bible translations failed to fairly and adequately represent the original author's intention? Start with that question. And how can English readers find better strategies in avoiding translation bias and errors? Um, right. Um, there are translations and translations in English. Um, and each translation uh, adopts a translation philosophy. Uh, most English Bible translations seek a balance between what are called the formal and the functional approaches. Uh, let me explain. A formal translation, to the extent possible, will retain the form of the original language. That is, uh, it will be committed to translating nouns as nouns, verbs as verbs. It will try and retain the order of phrases and clauses. A good example of that might be the King James uh, family. And uh, they would try to do word for word. A functional translation, on the other hand, would be less committed to the form. Uh, the verbal form of the source text, and instead it would prioritize the text's meaning and impact. Uh, examples of that might be the NET or the NLT. What they would do is translate sense for sense. That's exactly what we did in the example previous, where instead of saying bone uh, from my bone and flesh of my flesh, we did the English idiom. Because clearly, bone and flesh is a Hebrew idiom that's running right through the Old Testament in at least four or five places. So we did the idiomatic rendering instead. Flesh and blood, and that immediately makes sense to us. So functional translation would try to do that, do sense for sense. Now, all translations will fall somewhere on the spectrum between the formal and the functional. Uh, none would be entirely formal because then uh, the, the translated text would stop making sense to us. Uh, it wouldn't be entirely formal or entirely functional. Uh, many, like the NIV, for example, would be somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Uh, and we find that when uh, the United Bible Societies, for example, makes uh, um, uh, translations of the Bible into a language for the first time, uh, uh, it usually tends to lean heavily towards a functional, sense-for-sense sense approach. Uh, our choice has been to lean towards a functional translation, and this has been so that we can try to preempt uh, um, unfaithful representation, unfaithful translation of the Bible, and try as best as we can to get into the mind of the author and translate faithfully. Uh, so that we can faithfully bring the meaning of the original text to our present day readers. Um, the second question, Mimi, you said, how can English readers find better strategies in avoiding translation bias and errors? Uh, bias, um, like I said before, uh, with CBE, uh, the, the biggest issue that we have to tackle is patriarchy and the translator has to understand the difference between description and prescription. Uh, so even though both the Old Testament and the New Testament are set in patriarchal structures, uh, we should be able to get it into our heads as translators that there's a difference uh, between a description and what's being prescribed. And so if we read the Bible carefully, looking for what it prescribes, 
uh, without simply getting distracted by what it describes, then we are going to find, as we did in the Genesis 2 text we read just now, that there are some ideas going on there to overturn the existing structures that will absolutely blow our mind. So it helps us to recognize the radically subversive nature of the text and get into the spirit of the text uh, and uh, hopefully uh, avoid uh, bias. Thank you very much. You talk about a radical subversion of patriarchy coming from scripture written <clears throat> from a very patriarchal context. Right. And so you said bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, uh, bone and blood are maybe better metaphors. Can Is there another one that you can speak to just quickly as an example of distinguishing between prescriptive and descriptive? For example, he will rule over you. Often I hear, uh, well, that's that is what the Bible says. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, that one, mm. uh, oh, that one really has to be put back into its literary context and read as a unit. And what we see there with the three penalties uh, that God um, uh, lays out for the serpent and then for the woman and then for the man, uh, we see a pattern running through all of them. And the pattern is that in each penalty, there is a... Um, 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 an effect upon a basic function of the serpent, the woman, the man. The serpent will now lose its function of locomotion and will now be reduced to groveling on its belly, uh, locomotion being the basic function of an animal. Uh, the basic function of the woman, childbirth, that will be affected. How? From now on, the birth pains will increase. The basic function of the man, what might that be? That is to till the ground and to make it yield. That is going to be affected. Why? Because now he will have to work at it by the sweat of his brow. Then there's another little pattern that runs through the three. In each penalty, in the, uh, in the second line, there is a fracture of an existing relationship. And so with the serpent, there will now be enmity set up between the serpent and the son of the woman, the human, or between two classes, between the animal kingdom and the uh, and, 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 and human beings. And then we come to the woman. Okay, let's do the man. And then we come back to the woman. The man was a fracture. The fracture is between the man and the ground in sentient nature that now refuses to cooperate with him. There is a fracture there. So now come back to the middle one, to the woman. What do we have here? The fracture between the man and the woman, that relationship with which the previous chapter ended, the man and the woman were naked and uh, it didn't worry them at all. They were in harmony, leaving and cleaving. But now that relationship is going to be fractured by saying how the woman's desire will be for the man, but he will rule over her. Now, lots of people read this immediately as um, uh, the sexual relationship, you know, the desire. How else do we read 
Desire, they might. Tolkien, Song of Songs. That's only, that's, uh, there are only three places that word is used, by the way. The word desire, Tashuka. So they go straight to the Song of Songs and say, look, in the Song of Songs, Tashuka means desire. So that's what it means here. The woman is going to sexually desire the man, but the man is always going to have the upper hand over her. Now, that is reading it uh, uh, in, a, uh, in a rather male way, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's what I would think. Instead of going to the Song of Songs, you don't have to look far. You just have to look into the next chapter, Genesis 4, in which the word Tashuka occurs again. In fact, both the words, desire, somebody desiring somebody, and somebody dominating over somebody, both of those words, desire and ruling over, occur in the very next story. And there, it is sin and Cain. This is what God says to Cain. He says, sin is desiring, the same word, Tashuka, is desiring to control you, but you must rule over it. You must exercise your control over it and um, dominate it. That's exactly what's happening here. The beautiful relationship uh, between man and woman has now been uh, torn apart. And what is set in now is the same thing. The uh, uh, the the non-cooperation um, between the two parties, hostility even between the two parties. So just like the <clears throat> animal kingdom and human beings are uh, at uh, at war with one another, just as much as the man and the uh, ground that he tills are uh, at uh, loggerheads with each other, here the man and the woman are at loggerheads with each other, each trying to dominate the other. That's mm -hmm. all it means. Right. So powerful, so clear. And thank you so much for your wisdom and your learning on these difficult passages, which to this day are used to dominate women. Exactly. And that's the way we make the mistake and think that it's a prescriptive text, that the man always needs to be in control of the woman. We think it's prescriptive. It isn't. It's just a description of the world after the fall. Right. Right. Everything is loggerheads with everything else. Right, exactly. And where Song of Songs comes in, Mimi, is a return to Eden, a reversal of this state that's described in Genesis 3. And so when you get desire there, that's used in a sense of restoration of the relationship between man and woman to the pre-fall state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. It, yeah. Does it foreshadow Christ in any way? Um, we can read it at different levels and all of them can sit layered on top of each other without any problem. Uh, so the first thing with any Old Testament text is always to read it in its own literary context. And once we've done that, which is what we did just now, we can then layer on the post-cross reading, which would be, all right, here is uh, Satan, the serpent, and here is Christ, the son of the woman. And uh, here is one winning over the other. We can do that as a second layer, of course. Right, right. Excellent. Thank you. Well, we're going to take just a short break and give you a chance to take a sip of tea or something. And our listeners will, will hear what's coming up in the life of CBE, our next conference in Denver, Colorado. Tell her story. Uh, the revisiting of the biblical and historic evidence of women's leadership, 
uh, proof that they are gifted and called by God and that God blesses and honors their work. So we'll be meeting in Denver, Colorado, the 26th through the 28th uh, next year. And we're going to scale the mountain of evidence, biblically and historically, just like the beautiful Rocky Mountains in the region, which you can pretty much look up and enjoy at any point. Having grown up there, I just love that state. And so uh, we will metaphorically scale the Rocky Mountains and examine the evidence that we have now as Bible scholars such as Havila bring us. So please join us. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. 